This is an interview cool. with Sunseeker on Sunday, December 20th, 2020 by Nick Bertel. Now, can you each introduce yourself? Like, tell me your name, how you got your first instrument, and any sort of like music schooling or tutoring you've received for yourself, starting with Nikita. Yeah, uh, my name is Nikita. Jeez, uh, I, I do lead vocals, lead guitar, uh, a lot of the behind-the-scenes work, and um, a lot of the songwriting for Soundseeker. As far as first instrument, it's kind of funny. I did trombone when I was a young kid. Like doing band through at least up to middle school, and then like towards the middle school, I had like towards the end of middle school, I felt like I should play guitar for some reason. I just wanted to get into it, even though I wanted to play drums when I was really young because they were all shiny and pretty in the window. <laughs> <laughs> so I basically started on acoustic guitar, learning with a private tutor for more or less the majority of uh, my education. I did some classes and like towards the end of high school, I did some theory tutoring as well. I did semester of music at college but i just hated the program there so i ixnayed that and just basically kept on with either mix of private tutoring and uh yeah teaching myself for uh the past however many years <laughs> and here i am i'm jeff play rhythm guitar in the band um i started with the music in fourth grade i think is what it was with the uh, my town did um you know Started having uh, you know, like do instruments and stuff. I uh, was a percussionist from fourth grade all the way through high school. Did marching band, all that stuff. I, I, you know, I was the super dork. Ended up picking up guitar or fifteen. Uh, took lessons. I want to say like six months to a year. Uh, buddy of mine at the time, his dad played, so he was teaching me a bit. And then from then, it's been basically a uh, self-taught. From then, just you know, playing stuff I like, trying to learn songs, use that to improve, and uh, that's that's basically my like whole thing with uh, music. From there, it's 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 kind of you know, it seems that like stereotypical uh, journey learning. How did your band Sunseeker come together? So with Sunseeker, I basically uh, left my old band and I was away from them for about like a year and a half, <laughs> and it just kind of you know a combination of dissatisfaction in what job i basically ended up in to put it mildly i guess you know personal <laughs> demons and issues along with uh the desire to play music again and, and finagling with writing songs i ended up getting in contact with our bass player rob who was uh playing guitar with me at the time we just kind of started jamming out for a little bit a couple months and uh, after that i kind of we clicked pretty well as far as you know being able to sit in a pocket really nicely on rhythm stuff and both had a generally the, uh, the same kind of influences and vision for the band. And after that, we kind of started to piece together the lineup. Rob was talking to our drummer, Pat, who lived in um, Massachusetts at the time. You know, we got we jammed with him for a bit before he ended up moving back to Connecticut because he was, he was a Connecticut native. And sure, around that time, we were looking for a bass player. It ended up working out that Rob wanted to transition over to bass to try something new. And I had known Jeff since uh, since college, since we did college radio and stuff like that. Yeah, and so, actually, I think since you were 18, your freshman year, actually. Well, yeah, that's because uh, Swighton was hanging out at the couches. Yeah. And just oh, yeah. The Nevermore hoodie. And I'm like, oh, look, a band I know. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so we, um, yeah, we knew we, we reconnected, I think, actually, around that same time. We went to Gold Burgers, some beers yeah. and talked to the shop you, for a bit. 
yeah, you tried to actually recruit me originally to play bass. I'm like, I'll think about it. I checked out some of the stuff. I'm like, bass is definitely not going to work out for me. So I was like, hey, you know, if you guys need a rhythm guitarist, I had a bass, but I barely played it. It was more so like, hey, if I record, I have stuff to, you know, can lay down bass lines. But it was like, I told him like, hey, if you need a rhythm guitarist, let me know. You know, bass isn't going to be the right direction for it. And yeah, once uh, Rob switched over to bass, he hit me up. It's like, yeah, so you want to come try out? I'm like, sure, just send me the music and hopefully I can learn this. (laughs) So yeah, we did we did a couple tryouts. It, it worked out okay. Everyone sits in the pocket pretty well. We all get yeah. along, and it's been the same way for the past like two years now. That was 2018, I think. Yeah, it's actually kind of nuts to think that it's been two years at this point. Yeah, you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> so, how do you guys typically write a new song? So for songwriting, that for at least for this EP. Um, has been mostly me, if not like I mean, like we'd put like I'd say ninety five percent me. Yeah, I would say ninety five percent you. So with these songs, you know, a couple of them were written a long time ago. Like Pilford was written a few years back when I was trying to do a different uh, musical project with a friend of mine that went nowhere. <laughs> um, and then you know, seeking my own son, I was playing around with when I was still in my old band, Arcade Decapitator. But then you know, over time, it just kind of you mess around with riffs. I just put things together over time usually it's, it's kind of it, it coincides with my listening patterns depending on what i'm really into at the time that'll influence the, the song i'm working on or at least influence what will come out of my hand when i'm play when my hands when i'm playing guitar and it just kind of worked out that way you know i'll, I'll set down the guitar parts or at least like the, the the bulk of the guitar parts um i'll have a general idea of drums and initially i would try to program drums out in guitar pro 7 but that program is not very uh conducive to that kind of work <laughs> for someone who doesn't like have intimate knowledge of notation of drum patterns on sheet music like myself so it, i kind of for the first couple songs i did that but i stopped really writing out the drum parts ideas and just kind of we we would flow with it at practice so i you know i'd bring send them out send out audio of it send out the tabs of it to all the members we kind of start slowly practicing it working on it and then the biggest thing that we do when it comes to playing together in the room is kind of one figuring out how it sounds anyone else has any ideas i'm like i'm very open it's not like yeah so we'll we'll jam out the ideas uh usually at practices you know I'll, we'll give the guy i'll give the guys a couple weeks to play with it usually mostly for pat to be able to figure out what he wants to do for drum patterns and it worked out really well because 90 percent of the time Whenever we get together and Pat would start playing drums, it'd generally be like what I had in mind. And I, I always give him free reign on fills, but most of it's like the rhythm patterns and the basic, the stuff that repeats. You know, that's what we kind of, you know, that's the one thing I really wouldn't, not, maybe not necessarily budge on, but that's kind of where I'd have like my quote unquote final say. But I mean, like I said, you know, uh, I take in feedback, I take in what the other guys think with like, we should change this part to this, or let me, let me write something for this section, or, Maybe if we did something like this, and I'd kind of take that into consideration and work on it, and we eventually, you know, either I'd work on it or they would bring in their ideas, and we'd go from there. What kind of songwriting techniques did uh, you use for this album? Well, it's funny because like the earlier ones, it, it definitely shows my earlier influence from when I was younger in terms of uh, writing metal. And after a while, I kind of would just take in the. Uh, I had I always used to have this issue of like putting so many notes because I'm, I'm a primarily guitar player so I think of the guitar part first and foremost almost always and what I would have to do is really pay in mind 
of all the other instruments that are going to be involved. So what are the drums going to do? What is the bass going to do? You know, give room to breathe. So I'm doing vocals. What am I going to do for these parts? So it, it takes a lot of, uh, it takes a lot of sitting down, like getting it out, re-listening to it over and over. Um, sometimes I'll just kind of, you know, press record on a, either the voice recorder on my phone or in, in a DAW and just play out like what ideas I had and eventually kind of piece things together from there. You know, it just, it just kind of like, <laughs> I guess that's the best way to put it really. It's just kind of like what come, come what may. And then I refine it later. And like I said, I, I was, I always give these guys in progress updates and see what they, what they think. You know, sometimes they say nice things. Sometimes they're like, eh, I don't know about this. Right, Jeff? Yeah. Yeah. That one, there was uh we may actually probably seeing your other questions. We'll can cover it in another one. But there was one song I was very much like, "Yeah, we need to change this." <laughs> yeah, there there were a couple. I mean, I think that's you know, there's also a lot of songs that we're working on right now that are still in the process. But yeah, it's usually you know just kind of me getting the idea to get like what kind of sound am I going for, or what do I want to try to go for, and then from there just stick put my spin on it and get get feedback from the dudes. You ever put anything like uh, arpeggios or like experimenting with different scales into uh, the song? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, you know, with a lot of these, kind of it's just it's the classic metal guitarist trap of the harmonic minor scale, which is don't get me wrong, it's it's a great easy cheat sheet for like ninety nine percent of melodic metal. <laughs> but um, you know, I'll throw in, I'll, I'll definitely try to throw in some other like scales going forward especially this 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 ep i feel is kind of a bit more more tame in some aspects but you know i definitely like to mess around with stuff like that like i mess around with the egypt the, the egyptian scale and its modes a lot i actually have one song that i have one song right now that i used cannibalized riffs from a song pat from a song i wrote when i was a lot younger that i'm going to be hopefully putting on this the the next release we're going to be doing down the line and that's all in the um, that's all in the Egyptian scale. I've worked on some Japanese scales myself as well, and some weird stuff like that. The um, Russian scale too, which has it's it's weird because it has like a weird. Uh, I think it's a major and a minor sixth. Ooh. So it has it has a weird characteristic to it, but I, I for me it like feels like home, <laughs> you know. So I'll definitely be messing with that too, uh, going forward. Yeah, uh, I was gonna say I would love to be able to get like some of the you know Middle Eastern kind of scales and influence in there. Uh, that would be like that's something I just love the sound of. It'd be cool to get that uh, worked into uh, future releases. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Like, how long do you think it'll be before uh, that song you spoke of comes uh, to fruition? So it's it's that one's tough because I have a love hate relationship with the initial version of it. You know, it was one of those, like, it was kind of like my first foray into songwriting, and I didn't understand how to write songs. So it's literally just a riff salad. It's four minutes of just, like, riff salad, of riff after riff after riff after riff, with no cohesive, like, flow. There's no hooks. There's nothing good about it. But the riffs are solid. And what's hard for me right now is to disassociate my, like, personal feelings towards how that song was back then and kind of you know, move around the pieces to get to being something good. Hopefully soon. I feel like I'm getting closer to being able to be happy with where it is, but it's going to take a little bit more time 
you know, probably on this upcoming release, the well, not the upcoming release, but the one once we get the means to an end out and really get people invested in that and start building building a better, uh, stronger fan base, I'll probably start thinking about the next EP or yeah, probably EP. And we're gonna that one's definitely gonna be on there. Initially, that one was gonna be on means to an end, but it just ended up not working out quite as well as I wanted it to. Hopefully soon though, because I've been meaning to put that song out for a while. Now that I have. No, number one, now that I have like a band that I can bounce ideas off of and confidently bounce ideas off of, unlike the past. Um, not Arcade Decapitator, but <laughs> my, my, my kid project. You know, I, I feel that that one's going to be coming to fruition sooner rather than later. You have songs that go back seven or eight years, like Pilfer. Yep. I guess, can you just tell me how that song has evolved over the years? So, honestly, with a lot of Pilfered, it was... Like the main riffs you hear, meaning the basically all of it more or less is kept in its original state. I, I didn't really do a whole lot to the riffs. It was more so the arrangement. You know, the harmonies that are in the, the, the harmonization parts in there are totally new. The solo's totally new. Uh, the clean guitar part was actually Jeff wrote. So that's completely new. That's not even out of my That's out of my hands. But it used to be. <laughs> it was a badly written, I think, like 10-minute song when I first wrote it for my old project. And that one, uh, you know, that that did not work in the slightest. Listening back to it, it was terrible. It had a clean intro that sounded awful. So it definitely, I, I cut some things and I rearranged some things to make it what it is now. And the, the lyrical themes of Pilford definitely changed since, since I wrote it eight years ago. Yeah, it's... Um... It was just because, like, the big change, it seems, in that particular song from, like, what Nikita brought to us, at least from his um, just rearrangement, was a six section in it that I ended up writing. It was just kind of one of those things where I just, I felt like it could have been more from what I was playing. Like, I learned the song as it is when, obviously, he brought it to me. And it's like, hey, you know, Lars is one of the ones to learn to try out. But it's like, I felt there could have been more there. I think I followed the... um relatively followed the same chord progression he used. I just kind of, you know, zazzed him up a little bit. And uh, I did an, ended up doing like a finger picking uh, for it instead of um, what was there. I felt like, you know, that was kind of my big influence that I brought into things. Just like I, a lot of um, what I listen to, you know, like Opeth, you know. I, I, I'm a big fan of Metallica, like huge Nevermore fan. So it's like bands that use a lot of, you know, clean and acoustic that bring into things and really help... Um, you know, progress the sound, as it were. The opening track to the album is a short instrumental entitled The Plot. What was it like writing that? So, <laughs> The Plot was kind of like, I, I felt I felt weird having a four-track EP and I wanted to leave something in there. And I was toying with the idea of doing an instrumental, either like clean guitar thing or like it turned out to be, um, you know, uh, keys, uh, synthesized keys kind of thing. I've been toying with it for a while, and I was kind of messing around with a few things. And it just, I felt that having the plot, which basically more or less follows the uh, chords and melody for the chorus of Pilford, to tie them together, not only just musically, but thematically, um, I felt that that was was probably the best way to go. So I more or less just rearranged and maybe not transposed, but like adapted the the chords and the melody of. of the chorus of Pilford into just like a small little instrumental piece. That one was, <laughs> it was literally just kind of like, I want to have one more track on here, at least something small, yeah, maybe not a full song, but just something small to kind of, you know, 
tie it all together almost kind of thing or kick it off in, in the right way and it just kind of popped in like that i felt that i think it worked out pretty well um there's a lot of you know a lot of bands will do that will do like a soft um instrumental kind of thing like that i see like my favorite metal instrumentals of all time are uh, rigor mortis's welcome to your funeral and death angels the ultraviolence <laughs> what are some of your favorite instrumentals Oh, God. I'm going to need some time to think. Jeff, can, can you start this one? Okay, so I have to be that, you know, previously, I'm a big Metallica fan, so I have to be that jerk. Orion, just absolutely fantastic. Uh, you know, that's uh, same with Call of Cthulhu. I actually wasn't, I, I don't care much about the one on that they did on Injustice, uh, but, like, those two are big for me when it comes to instrumentals. And as I said, I'm a big Jeff Lewis fan, so, like, just, I, I guess, technically would be instrumental. His solo albums are just, like, blow me away kind of a thing. So it's, you know, um, like, like th- those really of those um, big ones. Like, it, particularly for Jeff Loomis, I'd say probably, like, like, the ultimatum off of his second album, Planes of Oblivion, I want to say that was the name of it. And uh, Miles and Machines, like, the first time I heard that off his first uh, solo album, I was just sad that I was dumbfounded, like, the... Um, Harpsichord, I think it's harpsichord is what he's trying to emulate with the like arpeggios in the beginning and then just going into the sweet picking of those arpeggios. I was just completely blown away. But like, why do I even bother playing guitar? I'm never going to be that good. So it's like, those are the real things that like, for me, instrumental wise are just like, wow, you know, kind of going on the two, um, you know, spectrums there with what people would expect, you know, be like, kind of i guess in metal um you know what you'd expect out of instrumentals with what metallica did too like you know seeing now like the all these shred guitarists and everything kind of where i range with that i guess for me it'd have to be like maybe i could probably come down to like two or three uh, i really liked uh, drunken paris from typo negative it's a really short one i think it's like all of a minute and a half <laughs> but it's just something about it it, whether it's like the the accordion sound they use or just the way that the chords move, it just got gets me like in the feels, and it, it's a shame because it's like it's only like a maybe a minute and a half, two minute track, and it's it, I I just deeply want it to be just an eight minute jam session. I just feel like it would it, it lends itself really really well to that. You know what I mean? And the next one that I really I. I personally listened to a lot in high school was the title track off of the first wretched album the exodus of autonomy (laughs) just nine minutes of really sweet like techie melodeath jams with like a a, a really flavorful spanish influenced interlude in the or spanish influenced break in the middle and it just it just has a lot of fun it has some chugs it has some heavy bits but it 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 moves nicely you know what i mean it it flows well so like i think could those two probably come to mind the fastest and then like every single shred guitarist ever all instrumental so you know well except for Ingvai. Ingvai can go to hell but you know cacophony everything like that yeah now on that note you've listed uh video game soundtracks as big influence on your band as well what are some of your favorite soundtracks and games i mean basically anything nobuo uematsu has ever written is like <laughs> is my bait is my is my rock right there that's that's usually where i immediately go for for any influence of like usually towards either song composition or layering of like parts or even when i'm trying to think of what to do with like the synth parts with the keys and the strings it's just always 
right away to Uematsu's work. And then, you know, you have your greats like Yasunori Matsuda, Yoko Shimomura, both who did, um, you know, they did Parasite Eve and Kingdom Hearts and Chrono Trigger, respectively. You have Matoi Sakuraba, who taught, who did a lot of the Star Ocean soundtracks and has a really cool, more contemporary uh, approach to to his music. It has a lot more electronic influence and poppier elements than I feel Nobuo does, although he's been doing pretty good job with uh what he's done lately and then you know uh you have your you have the classics you know um oh god what's the name of the composer who did oh my god i can't remember i can't believe i'm forgetting the name of the composer who did zelda ah it's gonna bug me to the end of time and i'm gonna look it up later and be just like absolutely gutted because it was right on the tip of my tongue but i keep thinking of a completely wrong person but, you know, the Zelda soundtracks have always been fantastic. Anything, yeah, you know, the classics are always the classics. You can't go against them because they're so well-written, and it still pisses me off that I can't think of the <laughs> name. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's not something. But Castlevania soundtracks, like, lend themselves really well to metal with that, like, gothic influence. Yeah. But even then, just, like, God, they slap. They absolutely... I would say the, uh... Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off no, there. No, no, it's okay. I could go the, on for uh, like, really yeah. years. Honestly, like um, the Metroid for me, like the Metroid Prime soundtrack, I actually had to look up yep. with the um, uh, composer is Kenji Yamamoto. Like I thought, like he did fantastic. Like I, you know, it's a lot more like ambient stuff a lot of the time with that. But the, some of the uh, parts and some of the sections are just absolutely phenomenal. And like again, so it'd be cool to like maybe bring in some of that influence into uh, some stuff in a um, you know maybe the next EP or the EP after that. For instance, we do have some of the. Um, you know, synth stuff on a couple of the songs. Obviously, we're probably going to be including that and, in, you know, future stuff. So it'd be cool to get some of that in there. Like, you know, and it's just kind of stereotypical at this point, but like, you know, the Doom 2016 soundtrack, the way, um, God, I'm blanking out the dude's name, but like the way he Mick combined. Gordon. Yes, thank you, Mick Gordon. The way uh, he combined just all the, you know, like, yeah, that kind of like stereotypical gent sound, but like he brought in all that, you know, electronic influence that just really helped set the tone for the game. And just like the music on its own, you, I, I, you can sit there and just like jam out to it. And it's just, you know, phenomenal. So like, you know, just hearing those kinds of things that you see more mainstream games too, like kind of bringing in some, um, maybe something a bit heavier was just cool for me. Just because, you know, it's Nikita's naming off all these, you know, games that have like great, like composed, like more orchestral kind of stuff music wise. So it's nice to see, I guess, um, something really bring in that just something a bit more visceral to the uh game which obviously with doom it just kind of fits the uh you know the way the game is but it's you know again cool to have that kind of um thing be a bit more you know mainstream in a game i should say i have to jump in it's koji kondo for zelda because i had to look it up (laughs) it just got to me so badly i had to do it (laughs) okay in 2020 as an underground musician how important do you feel like having yourself as well as your band on Metal Archives is? You know what? I honestly don't think it's it's that important, really. Um, yeah, I would say in terms same. of In terms of importance, I definitely put up having more accessible social media is way up there. So, you know, Facebook... I mean, Facebook is, is such a, such a catch-22. I usually would go to that as like a hub kind of thing but being more importantly instagram is really good because you that have that algorithm seems to reach out to new people a lot easier than facebook and twitter 
I think a lot of bands need to start using Twitter more and really putting up like more personalized content on there. I think those are really more important than metal archives or and camp. Of course, you need to have a storefront yep. that's easy to get to. With yeah, and they do a great job on Bandcamp of um, you know giving you all the tools you need to be able to get you know run a run a solid business. I mean, Metal Archives is cool for like, like I'll go on there and I'll double check on bands or maybe if I'm looking for similar artists or sometimes it's just sometimes I'll go there to maybe find like Bandcamp links and stuff. But that's just because I've used it so much. But I feel like a lot of people really don't use it. Yeah, or don't I've... know about metal archives, and I don't blame them because yeah, that that site that site like while it's is nice to have some knowledge, it's very gatekeepy, both in like the way the site is run and the forums, which are just the most toxic, one of the most toxic places I've ever been, and it's it's just insane. Like it's cool to have like your stuff and links up there, especially for like a kind of like a resume thing, because you you look at drummers like Dirk Verburen or. Or Gene Hoagland, you see this massive wall of links <laughs> and stuff, and you know, help to look up things like that. But I, I think Metal Archives is one of those places that needs at least a restructuring or a revamping. Because it's yeah, just, definitely. it's just a, it, it is a hive of maybe not scum and villainy, but definitely <laughs> a hive of like a hive of, a hive of <laughs> So. So it's not the Tatooine of the uh, metal world. It's it's not that bad because you know while they, they do have certain bands with certain affiliations that are very much frowned upon, and you know there have been a couple of cases where they actually will blatantly like label bands as they should be labeled, but at the same time it's like you're supposed to be in yeah it's it's metal archives, not just any alternative music archives, but it's like how do you not have between the buried and me or like converge? on your archives like i get it's metalcore but you also have bands like caliban that are straight metalcore on there listed as played metalcore and they're it's such a weird like picky choosy thing that they'd go through when it comes to allowing bands on there alone and it just kind of reflects the gatekeeping mentality of or like at least perpetrates the gatekeeping mentality of the whole site like i have a friend whose band was denied an entry on there because they seem to be primarily grind but it's like, yeah, but you have a page for Brutal Truth and Insect Warfare and Nazum and Pig Destroyer and Asuk. It's like, do we need to go on? <laughs> what do you mean primarily grind? You have a tab for grind. You have a tab for deathcore and metalcore. So stop being picky choosy kind of thing. If you want to be an archive, be an archive. There's my rant over. Long story I, short, it's it's cool, but it's not that important, I think. It's not something I've even thought about. Honestly, like I just kind of forget the place exists. I, you know, seeing the list of questions, it was like, oh yeah, that that place. Are we even on there? I actually had to go and look up to see if we're on not there. Or something. Yeah, no, I, I saw that. I actually went and looked it up. It was like, I want to say last time I was on there, you know, good ten years ago. They haven't even changed like the front page of it in ten years. And it's just like you would think too, like is something if you want to be like this actual archive, like you wouldn't you want to be able to just stay up to date, keep things, you know have a bit more modern interface and, and like look and it's just like do people use this honestly this is like my first thought with it when i kind of think about it at this point it's like do they use it is it even worth being on there you know it's do, are people going to find us on there or are we more likely to be found you know just through social media so it's like they haven't changed the site since 2002 
and it's it's like come on guys you know there's you definitely see people on here but you know are those people the kinds of people who will commit as a fan to a band or legitimately fans of bands or are they just like those kinds of people who obsess with data collecting and knowing all of all of the bands and making sure everything's up to date and stuff like that like i think that's what we're looking at because i i knew a kid who was like that he was like a metal archive but it's like I'm not going to, you know, we were talk, trying to talk about bands and every time he mentions the band, it's like, oh, look, here's an obscure demo from 1995. And I go, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, if this demo was that good, then why is this band not a thing? And why has this not been picked up by people? You know what I mean? It's it's a cool it's a cool little resource, but I feel that it's just one of those things where if, you're in, if, if someone's in a new band, it's one of the, like, least important pages to worry about i put more effort into building a social media presence across the big three and even tiktok honestly while we still have it and making sure you know everyone the band camp's on point everything's professional on there metal archives is kind of like a we have a page check us out i guess i don't know (laughs) i wouldn't even take reviews into account on metal archives because some of the people on there are just like well this doesn't line up with what i like and therefore, it gets a twenty percent. It's like, oh, all right, but clearly, the, <laughs> everything else about it is like, oh, look, this album is amazing. I, like, I think Slaughter, I think Slaughter of the Soul has like a sixty-five percent on there. I'm like, yeah, you know, don't get me wrong, I love the, you know, the older At the Gates too, but Slaughter of the Soul isn't a bad record, seeing how it literally shaped melodic death metal going yeah. forward. I wasn't even aware that they had album reviews on there. Oh yeah, they're, they're <laughs> almost all like. Like some things you find out they have like pretty good scores, but I just I just don't care about album reviews on there because it's like any any person who owns a blog can put up an album review and then like when you think about it like that and you just have to sign up for a quick account on Metal Archives and people use them as their own music blogs basically their their own page is just their music blog and it's like oh, I don't want to I don't want to see that because jeez Louise this man literally hates everything. <laughs> Sorrow of the Soul has a 71% how. No. You sure? <laughs> For now. What is your favorite ghost story or urban legend about Connecticut? Ooh, Jeff, what, do you have any? Because I, I, mean, I, I, I know of the couple. Honestly, I have kind of just... I, I, it's not something I really follow much. It's never been stuff I've been overly into. Uh, honestly, just kind of, you know, again, seeing the questions, it was just make me curious as to what is going on in Connecticut. It's just the... Uh, Legend of the Green Lady kind of is what caught my attention. Um, I guess with, you know, the whole thing with it is a woman's husband, like, went in town this early 1800s. Woman's husband went in town to get supplies. There was a snowstorm. He, like, I guess the, you know, story is he stayed in town just to avoid it. She got worried when he didn't come back, ended up going out to search for him, I guess. Supposedly, you know, died in the swamp. Um, and she haunts the graveyard in... Um, is, uh, where is it? I think Burlington, Connecticut. There's a graveyard she supposedly haunts there, and people have said like they've you know um, seen a ghost like of a woman you know, and I'm um, like green like glow around her or whatever. And, like she'll you know it's like smile and wave and kind of like that's it. I, it was just kind of interesting with the story with it. I guess I looked into it a little further. I guess there's you know some satanic stuff that apparently. Um, supposedly kind of connected to it and everything too since then it was just really weird that i found that that would be connected with just what seems like such a kind of mundane um 
you know, thing happening, like what you would kind of wouldn't be shocked to see happen in the, you know, early 1800s. So it's just, I found that quite interesting, but again, it's like, I, I don't know much about it beyond that. This is just, I'm not like super into, you know, the, uh, ghost stories and all that. They've never really been something that I've caught my attention personally. I will say Green Lady's definitely haunted. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be shocked, but... My, my girlfriend had a... She used to... When she was between jobs, she was helping her friend with his paper route, and they drove by there, and it was like... You know, it was like a regular morning. It kind of thing. It rained the night before, but the length of Green Lady Cemetery was just thick fog, and they're like, are we going to crash and die? Because as <laughs> soon as they got past, like, the grounds of Green Lady, it was clear as day. And she's like, yep, haunted. I'm never going there again. Everybody I've talked to who's been there has been like, I'm not standing foot anywhere near there. That place is messed up. And it's not like just, you know, smile and a nod kind of thing. It was like a not bad things happen. I'm out. I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Connecticut is weird because there's so many haunted things. And like most of them are from the Warrens, you know, Ed and Lorraine Warren, where just like their, their, uh, I think it's demonology, demonological exploits have like influenced so much of pop culture between like Amityville horror and, the Conjuring and Annabelle is there. I think Lorraine passed a couple of years ago. I want to say, or maybe even a year ago now. So now we don't know what's going to happen. Maybe and maybe this is all the 2020s because Annabelle doesn't have a Warren around to keep her in check. But uh, <laughs> there's that. You know, like you mentioned, the Green Lady. There's there's Dudley Town, which is like it's an abandoned town in Connecticut, and the rumor is there have been a lot of like mysterious occult related deaths in Dudley town. So it's actually private property. You can get arrested for trespassing there. And me and my dumb high school friends wanted to do a camping trip back in like 2011 to be like, Oh yeah, let's do a camping trip in Dudley town and get possessed by demons. (laughs) (laughs) Things like that. Um, you know, the Connecticut ones are cool, but like I said, they almost all like relate back to Ed and Lorraine Warren and the things that they've gone through. Like for me, like usually when I think of, cool supernatural things or 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 folk legends it's usually like it was from russia i know more about the russian kind of stuff like everyone knows baba yaga whereas they like to say baba yaga which annoys the hell out of me but uh, you know it's like oh she's just like an evil witch i'm like yeah she's an evil she's a sometimes evil witch who lives in a hut that walks on chicken legs through the fucking woods <laughs> and may or may not help you. It's like, maybe she'll help you out for a price. Maybe she'll deep fry your child. You never know. And it's just so, because it's like, no, legit. And it's like, you don't know if, you know, you don't know either way. It's not like, oh, well, witches are bad or like Hansel and Gretel. I'm like, oh, she'll cook you. But it's like, no, she legitimately could help. Or she could be like deep fried babies. Yes, please. Or you get things like, um, there's the tale of Ivan Sosanyan in Russia, which actually my mom just recently told me, funnily enough. Which was basically like a, a, a martyr, a, a national hero who there was a team of Polish assassins who came to kill off, I think, Tsar Nicholas the first or second, one of the two. And the legend goes that he basically was like, oh, OK. Oh, sorry. No, Tsar Michael. My mistake. I had to, I had to double check my my notes. And um, so instead of being like, oh, yeah, cool, I'll, I'll tell you where it is. He's like, well, I can't let the king die. So he just brings them into the woods kind of like you know kind of almost like scorchard style where you go in too far so you have to retreat just brings them into the woods and nobody ever return nobody ever return just like yep save save the king by leading a bunch of polish assassins into the woods and nobody knows what happened there's yeah well or, or just <laughs> each other and then there's this, the tale of uh rasputin who like oh 
I, I, I healed, I healed the hemophilia of the king's son, and I was, they tried to assassinate him like five times before they succeeded. Died of hypothermia when he was shot, stabbed, poisoned, and drowned. And I believe there's one more other way they tried to kill him, and he survived every single one, except for hypothermia. And they also, after he passed, they they saved his member in a in a jar, reported to be between eleven and thirteen inches. That's why that's why that old Boney M song, Russia's Greatest Love Machine. Boy, how did you got that right? <laughs> that <man. laughs> those are just a couple of the favorites. I, I did I did a bit of dabbling into like Russian pagan paganism and like Russian folk stories like a few years ago, and I got deep into that. So I, I forgot some of those stories, but fun fact. Beauty and the Beast, that basic story is a Russian folktale from like thousands of years ago. Exact same plot line with almost the exact same outcomes. Now, I guess, what is your most cherished album in your music collection? Jeff, I have to think again. Oh, God. I, for my vinyl collection, it's actually, I have, I am pretty sure I'm actually going to open my thing, my chest with them here. I have a copy of uh, Metallica's. Um, Garage Days Revisited. Like, I, I'm pretty sure it's an original press. I could be wrong on that, but it's just one of those things I saw at a record store. I'm like, wow, I need to have this. Again, just being the Metallica nerd. Uh, but it was just like, it's one of those things, just like the great thing for me with records is, you know, if you can get the old ones, you're like actually hearing the music as it was, you know, how it was recorded. It's not like we're, you know, hearing an MP3 now or it's all digital, but it's like this is the actual music from, hey, 1980. You know, this is that actual album. You're hearing music from literally, you know, this point, it would be 30, 40 years ago. If it was, you know, the early 80s, almost 40 years ago. So it's like that. It's just to me, you know, it's cool. That's why I like I loved picking that up. But it's just, again, just, you know, being the uh, a huge Nevermore fan, like I have their entire uh, discography on CD. You know, that was huge for me to be able to just get all of those. I have most of them on vinyl. There are a few more I need to pick up, but it's like, you know, there's just kind of those little things like that having, you know, those kind of, you know, um, special things for my favorite bands either on, you know, either of them was just, you know, cool for me. Just like, that's what I love. I have like another, like uh, there's another Metallica one I did find where it's a bootleg from, um, one of their shows in uh, 86, like, you know, back when Cliff was in the band, it was like I had to look it up. So I'm like, what the hell is this? And it was like, yeah, this is a bootleg from, you know, that show. It's, you know, never an official release by the band. I was like, I need to have this just because, OK, there's an actual, you know, these bootlegs out here. I went and grabbed, it, I think, for like a hundred bucks that it was or whatever when i got it it was just like that was cool just to be able to find that bootleg from an actual show from you know 86 was like spectacular was it the 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 last show in sweden uh i don't know it's molten rock is the name of it it's uh chicago is the uh i'm looking at it right now it's yeah it's from a chicago show uh april 20th 86 it's really cool it's cool to listen to too because it's like you can tell it's like yeah this is like definitely like somebody like somehow got something in there to record this for this show it's like it's the the sound quality isn't you know spectacular but still just like somebody actually got you know some sort of recording equipment in was able to go you know um get the actual sound from the show and actually get it pressed and released was just that's cool so it's like for me like you know just like that's awesome that i have this 
I didn't know you had that. That's legit as hell. <laughs> yeah, I, I can actually send you a picture after. But yeah, it was like, too, because the funny thing is, if you look at the actual vinyl itself, I was like, did I get ripped when I picked it up? Because like, you look at the actual vinyl itself, it's like uh, the Wizard's Quest is like the name on the, like it printed around, along the, um you know, right around the uh, little spot where the peg goes on the um record player. So I'm like, did I get gypped on this? I put it in. I'm like, no, this is this is Metallica. Like, this is legit fucking, you know, bootleg that somebody tried to go and, you know, was actually selling. Holy shit. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty sweet. Um, For me, I mean, I've, I've been buying a lot of CDs more or less lately, but I've been doing it kind of a lot for the past few years. I've got, you know, all of Strapping Young Lad on CD, except for like a couple of rare EPs and stuff like that. Like, I'm still trying to find C colon inter colon pound pound pound. <laughs> Because that has like the extended version of love that I, I grew up on from LimeWire. <clears throat> I've got all that. I have, I have the three main Bungle CDs, and for the self-titled, I have two copies where the first song is titled Travolta. One was a promo copy because it had the barcode punched out. One was a retail release, and then I have the uh, later release that has "quote unquote." I've got just about everything typo negative on CD, but I do have "Slow Deep and Hard" on the first CD print when it was road racer records so i'm proud of that one but i think the ones that really matter to me like mean the most to me would probably be my parents old ddt cds um their ddt was a really well-known russian band well-renowned russian band from like the 70s that's still going i saw them last year and it's like the lineup's completely different except for the lead songwriter but he's like a staple of my childhood and they still have their cities from when they were reprinted back in the 90s when they had them in russia and it's just like you know he was he's like they're one of the biggest probably russian like most renowned most well-loved russian bands out there ever and like just to have those and be able to hear all their because they were they were outlawed by the government they were very <laughs> very critical of of um you know the communist party and back then when they were active, like the the seventies, eighties, you you band artists and musicians and bands had to be like state sanctioned. You couldn't you, you underground musicians end up in exile or dead all the time. They managed to they managed to make a pretty prolific career out of it. They were very, very you know sneaky. I mean, they're they, you know they're just one of many back then that we either were or either were excuse me um you know were able to survive or after a while you know towards the 80s when things started to get more a bit a bit, a bit more lax managed to you know at least stay together and, and and eventually kind of be given like an okay pass but they're you know having those cds and being able to listen to that stuff that kind of brought us all together and the you know hearing ddt and you know, their singer yudi shift music is like just amazing a lot of it generally like my mindset towards music was inspired by him along with you know the overall because because they they combined so many different sounds they had keys they had synths they had guitars they had flutes they had a brass section in some songs you know some songs would be like straight blues hits and other ones like especially from the 90s had a bit more like of a post-rock kind of feel to them and then you have some songs that are just like straight just like fun party bangers that you can sing along to and then you'll get straight up like punk songs it's they they, they run the gambit but it's every time they do it it just works out super well i just i don't know it's hard it's hard to put put a stick a 
finger on it or you know pick one exactly but i'd say those cds are probably like the most personal uh most important ones to me personally i guess you'd say thanks a lot would you like to go back to any questions uh i mean let me double check uh i thought i ran the, ran the gamut pretty good um oh um i do want to quickly shout out though about the ep i want to this is i can't i always forget this i gotta talk about working with dave kaminsky yeah studio wormwood because the and what we it, it was probably the most important learning experience for the band i think oh, i can yeah. I, could, I think i could yeah i want to i think i can speak on everyone's behalf when i say that was the single most important learning experience for us as a band because dave was like the most professional dude ever and it was he was like the fifth member of the band um, oh yeah like the kaminsky effect can't be understated the dude locked in on us and we were all in the same wavelength and like a hive mind the entire time because i had worked with him I've known him for a while. I never got to record with him when I was with Archaic, unfortunately. I was actually supposed to before I left. But, uh, you know, the dude is, has such a wealth of knowledge of, ban- of bands and styles and different approaches to things, to how to record music, to from everything from, you know, how you play it to where you play it to, like, you know getting the best performance out of you and whether no matter what you could do and it's it's not like a lot of your small studio engineers or engineers who work with small bands where you cut a take and they go so how was it like what what kind of question is that to ask someone who just recorded a take you know what i mean like you, you don't know until you know you need to have someone who's a producer sitting there and be like you could do that better and oh, yeah. that man like the best way you know, pushed every single one of us to the absolute limit to get the best possible performance out of it. And it's like, like I said, it was it was the single most more important experience, at least for me personally. And it was just one of the best experiences for all of us because it's oh, like yeah. you really sit down and listen to yourself play, and you get that feedback from someone who's not directly. For, it's like he's a friend, but when it comes to the studio, it's all business. Yep. So if he tells you you could do that better or you need to tighten this up or, you know, he'll, he'll, for example, for uh, Seeking My Own Son, our single, when it comes to the, it's like a certain way of playing the verse, he basically like tweaks, he, he advised us to tweak our playing slightly yep. to get a bit of a more even and tighter sound. And it's something that I, on my own, never would have thought of. And I feel that if we were with any, almost any other engineer, they would not have said anything that have been like, how does that sound to you? And to our ear, it's like, it sounds like practice. It sounds great. And it would yep. just come out so much worse. Yeah. The amount of times, like when we were just for when we were recording, seeking my own son, like too, like it's not, I'm not picking it up as much when I'm playing. So it's just, again, it's, it's apparently something I'd been doing the entire time. Like there was just my picking, you know, the way I was hitting, it was just, I was hitting an open string, you know, not muting it properly. And I just, I never really noticed. And just the amount of time he stopped, was like, yeah, no, that string's ringing out. Like just cut it. We're starting over. Like, it's just like, wow, it's really just like, okay, I need to go back. Like I've since just from that experience gone back and readjusted, like try to adjust my picking. Like, okay, I'm, you know, Nikita likes to go and, um, 
you know, always tell me I'm like super tense when I play, but it's like part of that is because I'm just trying to, you know, how I've adjusted my picking. I'm trying to be cognizant, more cognizant about how I'm, you know, muting these strings and making sure I'm avoiding, you know, not hitting them while actually playing just to help keep things clean. It was just like his, you know, just that little thing of just like, no, you're hitting, you're hitting this note. Like you got to be more aware of that. Like we're just going to start over. We're going to get this right. Like really like force me to reevaluate just my own playing and like, okay, how do I change this? How do I go and, you know, use this to be a better guitarist moving forward? It's so many small things that you wouldn't have thought of yeah. as a player, especially like with it considering if you were the practice at home. And even if you, you know, if you do record yourself, sometimes you think it sounds okay. Sometimes you think it doesn't yep. in the rehearsal room. You know, there's only so much of us, each other we can hear. And those small details that get, get lost in a live setting. Oh yeah. But to have a guy who not only can pick up on that and advise on that, but also, you know, he gave really great insight into even lyric writing, you know, vocal performance, how to get the drums to do certain things, how, you know, to, you know, certain ideas of composition and layering of like different kind of synths and stuff. It just, or like different even types of synths or sounds to fit in a certain context. It's, it's something that really can't be understated. It was, like I said, I'll say it a hundred thousand more times. It's probably, it was the most, amazing and an important experience i think in all of our lives it was just oh, yeah. yeah like i'm not gonna say he was a jerk while recording but it's like his attitude with it he's really not afraid to be that asshole and be like no you're doing this wrong like fix this like he he really was not afraid to you know really push back on that feedback and really you know make sure like he was heard and you know we really understood what was going on you know again that's not saying he was an asshole while doing it but he's like not afraid to have that kind of mentality going into it from the you know at least i got from him from just the experience and it's just that's fantastic you know it's not like you know maybe i, I since he's the only one i've you know worked with i i don't know how other um you know maybe guys who'd work with smaller underground bands and everything would go and handle things but it's just you know there's there's no like there's no stroking an ego or anything it's just like he's going to push back when he feels he needs to and it does get us the best performance so that that was awesome dude dude is stern but fair and he pushes you to the to the limit and it's it's we're all the better for better for it without oh yeah doubt. thank you this was an interview with sun seeger on sunday december 20th 2020 by nick Perkel.